Well, hello everyone and welcome. So thankful that y'all are joining us today. I hope everyone is staying safe and sane. And I wish I could see all of your beautiful faces in person, but I guess joining you virtually is the next best thing. If we haven't met, my name is Adam McIntyre and I am the Grow Groups Coordinator here at FaithBridge. And I'm also on the teaching team. And I'm just so excited to be joining y'all for part two of our spiritual warfare series called Deliver Us From Evil. Pastor Ken kicked off our series last week with a wake-up call to wake up to the reality of Satan and that we need to stay sober. We need to stay alert so that we don't give Satan a foothold in our lives. This week, my hope is to uh, talk a little bit about the nature of spiritual warfare I think for a lot of us, spiritual warfare can seem like a kind of a nebulous concept. It's hard to wrap our minds around it. And so my hope is that we can make it more tangible, more concrete. And then I want to talk about what we can do to engage in this spiritual battle. So our main passage today is going to be in Ephesians 6. We're going to start reading in verse 10. Ephesians 6, verses, uh, starting in verse 10. This is the Apostle Paul, and he is giving instructions to the church in Ephesus. And here is what he says. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I want to stop there for now. And so to help us wrap our minds around the, this concept of spiritual warfare, I want to highlight a few key uh, passages, or a few key elements from Paul's description of what spiritual warfare is. And first, I want to talk about who exactly is this war against? According to the Apostle Paul, our war is never against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers, against the cosmic forces of darkness, uh, against the rulers in the heavenly places. But I wonder how many of us actually believe that this is true? Like how many of us actually believe that our war is never ever against flesh and blood, against another human being? I think for a lot of us, uh, these concepts even of, of spiritual warfare, of angels and, and demons, uh, they, are, they seem so otherworldly, like they're not even based in reality. I mean, honestly, think about it. Like if you were to go to work and you were to start talking about demons around the water cooler, or I guess now, if you were to open up your computer and open up your Zoom app and then start talking about demons, you would sound crazy, right? It would be like if you started talking about ghosts or alien abductions or Bigfoot, right? And I think it's because we live in a skeptical age and it's becoming more and more difficult to believe in the supernatural and things like spiritual warfare. But whether we like it or not, the Bible is just full of the supernatural. And spiritual warfare is a theme that runs throughout Scripture. And I'm afraid that if we ignore the supernatural elements of the Bible, then we're going to leave ourselves open to the schemes of the devil. So our war, it's never against flesh and blood, but it's against these invisible forces. But what exactly does this war look like? Well, I don't think any of us could ever fully understand exactly what spiritual warfare looks like. But there is one theme that runs throughout the Bible, and it's this. Spiritual powers are often linked with 
worldly powers. I'll say that again. Spiritual powers are often linked with worldly powers. Even in the passage that we just read in verse 12, Paul talks about these heavenly places. And now we might think of heavenly places as somewhere up in the sky, but Paul is actually referring to earthly kingdoms. Ever since the days of Pharaoh, rulers considered themselves to be divine. They considered themselves to be gods. So whenever people talked about the places where those rulers lived and worked, they would talk about heavenly places. And so, and when those rulers would use their power to oppress or to exploit or to uh, cheat the people that they're ruling over, people would often say that some evil spiritual forces must have infiltrated those heavenly places. And that's what Paul is talking about here in this passage. And I think we see this connection between spiritual powers and worldly powers most clearly uh, whenever Satan begins to tempt Jesus at the beginning of his ministry when, when Jesus is in the desert. I want us to look at Luke 4, verses 5 through 7. Luke 4, verses 5 through 7. It says this, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. All right, so uh, it is Satan who holds worldly power. It says that he has dominion over all of the world. And so he has this power to rule, to instill fear, to influence, to enslave, power to make himself great. And he offers this worldly power to Jesus, if only Jesus would worship him. Now, obviously, Jesus rejects his offer, but I think it's clear that there is some kind of connection between Satan and worldly power, which is where I think we get this phrase that uh, power corrupts, right? That I think that's a true phrase, power corrupts. And a great real life, real world example of this was the Stanford prison experiment. If you haven't heard of this experiment, uh, in 1971, Dr. Philip Zimbardo wanted to study the effects of prison on both guards and prisoners. So he decided to build a fake prison uh, in one of Stanford University's buildings. And then after screening numerous male volunteers, weeding out anybody that had any kind of mental instability, he was left with a group of typical, just everyday guys, average Joes. And he then split those guys into two groups, the guards, and the prisoners. The guards he contacted beforehand and he gave them like an orientation. The prisoners, he actually, he hunted them down and he arrested them on site and then he booked them and sent them into the prison. Which I remember when I was reading this, reading about this experiment, I remember thinking, man, that is extreme. How did they get away with doing that? Then I remembered this was 1971 and they were still smoking on airplanes and riding around in cars without seatbelts. It was like the wild west out there. Anyway, here is why this study is so famous because it was never completed. The study was supposed to take two weeks. They were supposed to observe the prisoners and the guards for two weeks, but it was terminated after six days because the guards were so sadistic in their treatment of the prisoners that they became worried about the, safe, the safety and the ethical concerns. They were worried that someone was gonna kill someone else, right? And remember, before this, these were all just typical guys, average Joes, but because of the power dynamic, it took no time at all for them to develop this us versus them mentality. They qu quickly forgot that they were just volunteers 
And it was like almost like they were brainwashed, you might even say possessed. And the environment of this prison, it quickly turned satanic and it became full of fear and hatred and hostility and violence. In fact, Dr. Zimbardo, he recently wrote a book about this experiment, about his experiment, and he called the book The Lucifer Effect. And it was this type of worldly power that Jesus rejected. And all throughout the gospels, he instructs his disciples and us to do the same, to reject this worldly power. And I think the best example of this uh, is in Matthew 20, when uh, James and John, they were asking Jesus if they could be at his right side and his left side, which were considered to be positions of honor and power. And when the other 10 disciples found out about this, they got mad, they were jealous, and they went, they, they were like, can we have that position as well? Like everybody wants to be in the position of power and honor. But I want you to listen to what Jesus told them. In Matthew 20, starting in verse 25, here's how Jesus responded to them. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus here essentially tells him, listen, if you want to be truly great, then you need to use whatever power that you have to serve others, to love others. Even the son of man, the Messiah, the rightful king, he did not come here to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And listen, we all have power of some kind, right? Yes, some people have more power than others, but we all have power. Uh, some of us have influence over a, a, a large group of people. I was reminded of Taylor Swift. I don't know if you've heard of her, she's pretty popular. <clears throat> uh, but Taylor Swift, back in 2018, she made a single Instagram post that encouraged people to vote. And within 48 hours, there was a surge of 169,000 new voter registrations. That's power, right? Now, some of you are raising children right now. You are literally shaping the lives of who they're going to become. Again, that is power. Some of you uh, are leaders, you're decision makers at work. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are leaders in a ministry. The point is, all of us have power of some kind. And so Jesus, in this passage we just read, he wasn't just giving out practical advice. He was instructing us on how we can resist the devil, right? Satan, he wants you to use your power in a way that is worldly, in a way that builds yourself up. Now, God, he wants you to use your power to love and to serve others. Jesus, in this passage, was giving us spiritual warfare instructions. And I'm afraid that we miss these instructions uh, anytime that we fail to understand that there is actually a spiritual war happening all around us. Like, it's real, and we have a role to play in it. Like, according to Paul, we have to be prepared at all times to resist the schemes of the devil. I love the way that C.S. Lewis talks about spiritual warfare in his book, Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king landed. You may say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. We are all 
called to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. How cool does that sound? Also, how do we do that? Right? Well, I think we need to keep reading in our main passage for today. Let's pick it back up in Ephesians 6. Let's go to verse 13. Ephesians 6, verse 13, says this. Paul says this. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you, may be, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Okay, so essentially, here is what Paul's saying in this passage. We are all called to use our power in a way that opposes Satan's worldly power. And God equips us with armor, with weapons, and with his spirit to engage in this battle. So Satan, the devil, he wants you to believe his lies, but we've been given the belt of truth. Satan, he wants us to uh, constantly live in division, to, to cheat, to exploit, to steal, but we have been given the breastplate of righteousness. Satan wants us to fear each other, to hate each other, to use our power to hurt one another, but we walk in the gospel of peace. Satan wants us to constantly live in, in fear and confusion and doubt, but we have been given the shield of faith. Satan wants us to just drown in our shame and our guilt, but we have been given the helmet of salvation. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can wield the sword of truth, which is God's word. And it's this weapon in particular that I wanna talk about. I wanna talk about how we can wield this sword of truth against Satan to push out his kingdom of darkness. And the first thing that we need to know is that scripture gives us the power to expose Satan's lies and it redirects us back to God's truth. I know there are people who are watching this right now who are under the power of Satan's lies. You believe that you're worthless, that you're not good enough, or you believe that you are un unlovable that you can never be loved, or you believe that you have committed an unforgivable sin. And I want you to just stop and think for a moment about the power that those lies have over your life. Like it, it's gotta be impossible to feel energized to do anything if you feel like your life has no purpose, if you truly feel like you are worthless. And it's gotta be really difficult to receive genuine encouragement and compliments if you feel like you are really unlovable. And I can't imagine the weight of the shame and the guilt that you must feel if you, if you believe that you've committed an unforgivable sin. It must feel like you can't breathe. But I'm telling you, that is the power of Satan's lies over you. But if you turn to God's word, the power of the Holy Spirit will redirect you back to God's truth and you will learn that you are not worthless. In fact, you are infinitely valuable. You are not unlovable. In fact, you are perfectly loved as evidenced by the fact that Christ died on the cross for you. And your sin is not unforgivable. In fact, it has already been forgiven by the power of Jesus' blood. God's truth has power over Satan's lies. I know that there's others of you who maybe you don't struggle with those same feelings. Like maybe you don't feel unlovable, you don't feel worthless, but you do believe that there are some people who are worthless. 
and you do believe that there are some people, some flesh and blood people who truly are your enemies. And you actually disagree with Jesus's definition of greatness. And you believe that you should use your power to advance your own way of life instead of uh, loving and serving your neighbor. Well, you might not realize it, but you also are under the power of Satan's lies. He is influencing you to use your power in a way that is worldly, in a way that is satanic. So I want you to take a second and I want you to just think about all of the people or the things that have influence in your life. It could be the news, the media, politicians, celebrities, social media, your family, your friends, your church, your grow group. Think about all those things and then ask yourself, does their influence align with scripture? Like, do, do these people make me feel like I want to love more or like I want to hate more? Right? Do they make me feel more compassionate uh, or more uh, just angry? Like, do I, do I feel more courageous or do I feel more fearful? Like, do I feel more forgiving or more spiteful, right? Scripture must be a primary filter for all the things that influence us. And I know that a lot of people don't wanna hear, you need to read your Bible more, right? But I mean, the truth of the matter is that if you want to expose the lies that Satan is sending to you, if, if you wanna break the power of Satan over your life, then scripture has to be a major influence in your life. However, uh, it's not enough to just expose Satan's lies. We have to actively combat those lives. The great campaign of sabotage, it requires action. It's not enough to just know God's truth. We have to actually go out and live it. When we know God's truth, God gives us his power to go out into the world to do his work, to go out and to encourage and to serve and to share our resources and to make peace and to spread the love of Christ. That's what God calls us to do. And by using our power in a way that is godly, we slowly chip away at the dominion that Satan has over our world. And this is an urgent mission. However, sometimes it feels like the church is not taking this mission very seriously. Uh, sometimes it feels like we're actually playing right into Satan's hands. I had a friend who, she used to work at Saltgrass Steakhouse and she would call churches churches uh, jerk factories is what she called them uh, because every Sunday uh, at the lunch rush, Christians uh, would show up in their Sunday best having just uh, come from service. And she said that those Christians were the uh, loudest, um, meanest, uh, most obnoxious, most impatient, most entitled, lowest tipping customers she would have all week. Like she couldn't stand it when she had to work the Sunday lunch rush. She couldn't stand it. And I remember hearing that story and thinking like, how is it possible that Christians who spent their morning worshiping the God of love and reading his book of love could then suddenly turn into jerks as soon as they leave the parking lot? I mean, these Christians, they were using their power uh, to discourage and to uh, act impatiently and to be rude and to uh, act selfishly instead of encouraging and instead of being generous and, and all the things that God calls us to actually do. And by the way, this friend of mine, she was not a Christian, which makes the story even more sad. And so instead of showing her the love of Christ, those people 
were claiming Christ's name while wielding Satan's power. And this is exactly what Satan wants. Like Satan, that, that's one of his primary warfare tactics, right? He doesn't care how many people call themselves Christians as long as they are doing his bidding and as long as they are bearing false witness. And just think about the damage that this does to our mission. Like we can't claim Christ and then go act like jerks at saltgrass. That would be like putting on a Christian uniform and then going and fighting for Satan's army. We can't do that. We must apply the truth. We must live the truth. We must wield the power. Uh, we must wield the power of God's truth in the world. That's what we are called to do. A few months ago, I was listening to a comedian who was describing this perfect morning that he had with his family. He was laying in bed with his wife and he had the, their dog by their feet. And then all of a sudden their, their two young daughters uh, burst into the room and they started jumping on the bed and they were laughing and they were tickling and they were smother, smothering each other with kisses. And then the wife said, all right, girls, why don't we go make pancakes in the kitchen? And so he stayed behind and he just relaxed in bed and the sun was shining through the windows and the dog was resting at his feet and he could hear the sounds of his girls giggling in the background. And he suddenly had an epiphany, a, a revelation. He thought, I don't ever want to do anything to mess this up. So what he did was he made a vow to himself right then and there that if anyone ever approached him and showed any hint of flirtatious behavior, he was going to put their, his finger in their face and shout, I do not cheat on my wife. He didn't care if that made him look foolish. He didn't care if the person was actually flirting with him or not, the only thing he cared about was that he didn't mess up what he had. He never wanted to destroy his family. And I remember listening to that story and listening how this man had this moment of clarity, this, this realization, and then he immediately followed, up, followed that up with a vow and with an action step. And I remember thinking, that's how we should treat scripture. Like when we read scripture, that's what we need to do. Like when we read scripture, when we hear scripture in a sermon, we need to always consider specific action steps because truth and action, they always go together. So maybe your action step today is to humble yourself and to go out and apologize and ask for forgiveness from a waitress at Saltgrass. Or maybe your action step is to delete social media and spend your extra free time uh, reading scripture and allowing scripture to have a bigger influence on your life than strangers on the internet. Or maybe your next step is simply to just believe the truth that God loves you perfectly, which can be difficult when you're being constantly bombarded with lies. If that's you, I recommend reading Romans 8, 37 through 39. Write it, print it out, carry it with you everywhere. Pa like Tape it to your refrigerator, tape it to your bathroom mirror, tape it to your dog, your baby, wherever you look. Make sure that you constantly have that promise in mind that there is nothing in this world that can separate you from the love of God. Whatever your next step may be, remember that there is a spiritual battle happening all around us. But God has given us weapons, he's given us armor, and he's given us a choice. We can either choose to use our powers in a way that is worldly, in a way that advances Satan's agenda, or we can use our powers in a way that destroys Satan's lies and promotes God's truth and advances God's kingdom. And if we choose the latter option, we are assured victory in this great campaign of sabotage. I wanna close 
by reading Psalm 32.8. Now, if you've been following along with our 40 days of prayer challenge, you will recognize this verse from our prayer challenge from this morning. Uh, and if you haven't been uh, trying out our 40 days of prayer challenge, I highly recommend it. I'm all about tools to help me with my prayer life. And this is an excellent tool. I highly recommend it. Also, I don't think it's a coincidence uh, that today's verse just happens to line up perfectly with today's message. I didn't plan it, but I also don't think it's a coincidence. So here's what Psalm 32, 8 says. I, God, will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Remember, we are not alone in this world. We have a God who instructs us, who counsels us. We have a God who loves us. Let's pray. Father, I'm just so thankful um, that you have not left us alone uh, to deal with these spiritual forces on our own. Uh, If that was the case, we would be helpless. But you sent your son uh, to to show us how to, to battle these spiritual forces and to, and to show us how to resist the schemes of the devil. Not only that, but you sent your son to defeat Satan on the cross once and for all. Father, because of the death and resurrection of your son, death has been broken, death being Satan's primary weapon against us. So now Satan is powerless over us as long as we stay in your truth. So Father, I pray for all of us that we just stay rooted in your, world, your word, that we use scripture, that we use your truth as a weapon against the spiritual forces in this world, that we use God's truth to, to expose the lies in our life, the lies that we are believing that are weighing us down, and to, to be reminded of the truth that we are loved, that we are cared for, that we are saved, and that you equip us for every battle. And so, Father, Father I pray that we just wield this sword uh, in the world to push back the kingdom of darkness and to build your kingdom of light. Uh, Father, we love you. And it's the name of Jesus we pray, amen.